Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 14, and if some of you are like, well, I thought we were in Matthew 15 last week. Um, why are we jumping back? Uh, we were. Uh, it's because mainly because Matthew 14 actually fits so perfectly uh, with communion. And so we knew that we were going to be doing communion this morning, and I thought, you know what, let's, let's save Matthew 14, and, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit, seeing how communion actually fits in here uh, within Matthew 14. So Matthew 14, uh, as you jump to it, you'll see it's, it's got two accounts in it that are probably like some of the most well-known uh, within Jesus' ministry. We've got, in this chapter, we've got the feeding of the 5,000 and we've got Jesus walking on the water. And, and, you know, this is the thing about both of these events. They're so well known that we can kind of just take some of the details for granted. And, and, and the fact that these were just fascinating details, that they are incredible events, both of them, and, and they're shocking miracles. Like absolutely shocking what Jesus was doing here in both of these accounts. And... Both of these accounts, they're, they're kind of seen, and, and we receive, receive them as being filled with metaphors that apply to our lives, right? We're, and, 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 so, and that's good, and, and we'll get into that a little bit, but we also know that we're looking at real events with real people that were recorded that took place, and, and, and we're looking at the reality of Jesus and the reality of what Jesus did as a person in history, and, and given the, the claims and the depth of the historical evidence or the breadth of it, it Jesus' validity and, and the fact that he walked this earth and did this is as strong as anything else that we will ever see in history. Any, anything else that we receive as, as being true in history, the, the, the validity for Jesus is as strong as any of that. But we're not in a history class, right? So, so we, 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 we take that but we're not just here to be in a history class and to learn history. We're not, we're not just going through the text with history in mind here this morning. And, and, you know, I say that because for over 2,000 years in church history, we have taken these words here and, and what has been recorded by Matthew, we have embraced this as God's very word for us. That, that these very words are not just history, but they are actually God's word for us. And, and so we, we receive them as they are written by man. They're written, these words are written by, were written by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they are, we receive them as God's revealed word for us. And, and, and so saying that, like understanding, because I've had some, some conversations lately about with people who there's, a, there's a, a push to maybe a little bit, especially in universities and in, in other institutions, to question the validity of the canon of Scripture. And, and why is the canon of Scripture the canon of Scripture? Which is actually a really worthwhile pursuit for us uh, as, as, we're, as we're studying the Word and understanding that. But, and so saying that because we affirm the Word, the living Word is for us Today, that we're not just reading a history document here. And so we, we believe, and, and, and I will, I'll stake my life on this, if you will, that the Holy Spirit guided Matthew to write and construct this gospel with intentionality. 
That, that actually the way that the gospel is constructed, the way that Matthew is putting it together, the way that he put the events together, and all this that we look at, right, as we've been going through it, that was done under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And that's been affirmed for 2,000 years of church history. And that's, that's a rich, rich tradition. Now, saying all that, to receive that, yes, you can have knowledge of that, you can learn about why we have confidence in that, but it also takes faith, it takes trust, right, that this is actually the word of God. And so we want to this morning, we want to again, as, by way of reminder, we are seeking for the Holy Spirit to make scripture alive for us this morning, that it is alive, that it's living, that it's active, that it's touching us, that it's speaking to us, that it's awakening our hearts, that it's opening our minds, that it is leading us into more and more truth, that it's speaking the truth of God to us, into our lives, into our situations, and it's transforming us. We want that. And so there's, there's purposeful progression here in the text that we'll get into that fits alongside our lives. Jesus is making powerful statements in these two accounts that we're going to look at for our lives today. So I want to I want to I want to look at this around I, I think two questions that we're always processing in our lives. And and it goes kind of doing to what you said this morning about we're always looking for satisfaction. And, and there's another way maybe putting this, we're always looking for who or what will sustain us, right? We're, we're always looking as, as satisfaction, what can I have in my life that will sustain me, that will satisfy me? That's, that's one question we are always, it's all, we're always processing that, always. In the back of our heads, that's always going. And the second question is, who or what will save me? I'm, we are always looking to something to save us. And so we ask these questions in just an, an unbelievable multitude of ways. There, there's an unending multitude of ways that we're always processing these questions. All throughout our lives, all throughout situations, all throughout circumstances, all throughout the seasons of our lives, what will sustain me? What am I looking to? What am I looking to for my salvation? What do I think is going to save me in this life? And... In Matthew 14, I want to put to us that I, I believe that Jesus is offering us his answer to each one of those questions. And, and so we come to, we're, we're going to pick it up in verse 13 of Matthew 14, but we come to this and Jesus is in grief over the death of John the Baptist. His, John's disciples have come to Jesus and his disciples, they've let Jesus know about what happened to John the Baptist being in captivity with Herod and how he was beheaded and and Jesus, he responds by getting away. He responds by withdrawing. He's dealing with the grief of his friend, of his cousin, and the reality of all of that. And it says there in verse 13 of Matthew 14, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Then it says, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. 
Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So we see this account here, and as, as this crowd is here, and as, they're, as they realize it's getting late, and they're hungry, and the disciples are relying, they look to their own resources. They're, they're looking about to the human sources for these people. And, and it's, you know, when they say to Jesus, like, hey, we should send them away so that they can go and get something to eat, we hear that and we go, well, that, that sounds logical in the natural. Like, it, it actually sounds, it's, 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 we could receive it as caring. It's, it's responsible that, that they want to do this. The problem they have is that what they have is insufficient. And they know this. They, they go, Jesus, like, like we've got literally nothing. We've, we've got five loaves and we've got two fish for this multitude. And like, we, we can't do anything here. You, you, we, we need to send them away. And, and so send them away so that they can buy themselves some food. Why wouldn't we in that situation think these people should be relying on their own provision? Right? They have the means. They can go to the neighboring towns and villages. There's, all, there's obviously food available. Let's let, let them go. It's, it's natural human inclination that we're seeing here. Now, it's interesting in Scripture because this, again, this is, this is something that is very natural to all of us. And yet, in Isaiah 55, God's speaking to his people and he talks there. It's an invitation to come and to partake of God's abundance. He says, come, come and buy from me. Don't, don't be looking to yourself. Come and partake of what I have. We also see this in Revelation 3, and the letter that Jesus writes through John to Laodicea. And Laodicea, that letter is going to church people, folks. It's not going to the world, it's going to the church. And they, the Laod, from what we know of the Laodiceans is they were confident in their wealth. They, they actually said, we, Jesus uses this phrase, we lack nothing. You, kinda, you get a picture of, of Western culture when you read the letter to Laodicea. And Jesus replies to them. He says, you think you lack nothing. You're living in this world of commerce. You're living in this world of abundance in this city. And Jesus says to them, you are wretched you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Now, Laodicea was, amongst other things, the center for clothing, the clothing industry in that part of the world, and they were also known for a special eye ointment that they produced there that was really uh, went out around them. And, so, and Jesus says, you've got this stuff, 
you're in a really serious condition. And what Jesus is addressing there is, you think that you, can, you have all this self-reliance that you can make it happen. And he says, you need me. You, you actually are in spiritual poverty. And, and so Jesus responds to them. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Which really what Jesus is saying there is, buy from me that which is of infinite value. Look to me. And so Jesus, the disciples come to him, and they're going, we need to send these people away. And Jesus' response is, you give them something to eat. It, it's utterly profound. Like, you go, what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus knew this was an impossibility. Jesus knew what they had. Jesus knew they had five loaves of bread, and they had two fish. He knew it. And he knew the process of their thinking, too. So the question when I read this is I go, Jesus, why say this? Like, why do you respond like that? And I think it's because Jesus wants us to realize and embrace the depth of our insufficiency. That he actually wants them to realize in the moment, we are completely insufficient. We do not have it. And, and he wants them to think about the situation and go, right, the sheer magnitude of the people, we've got nothing. And so perhaps Jesus is asking this because he wants them, the disciples, to go, oh yeah, Jesus, we need you. We, we, Jesus, can you do something? But that's not what they do. They, that's not how the disciples react. They go, oh no, no, we, we've, we've, we've got this. And so Jesus, he actually responds by putting himself into the situation, putting himself amidst it, and he says, okay, you've got these five loaves, you've got these two fish, bring them, bring them to me. I'm, I'm going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work in this. And it says in verse 19, there's that little note that says that he directed the people to sit on the grass. You know, I think, I don't know. This is how I see it. Actually, it wouldn't have been like that. It would have been like this. I think it's this. I think that's part of what he's doing. Are, are you ready? Are you ready to receive what I'm going to do? And then he does that. And it says, looking up, he gave thanks. I don't know. Did Jesus have to do that? I don't know. Like, I, was it like he had to follow the steps? Like, step one was this. Step two was, and if he didn't, if he missed that, it wouldn't. I don't think so. I think it was just him going, he's, he's showing us. Thank you, Father. This is, this is how we, we ask. 
This is how he's, Jesus is modeling dependence for us. And then, and then he, as he, after he does that, then he gives the loaves back to the disciples. So he involves them now in the process. He's inviting them into what he's doing. He's inviting them. He's inviting us to be participants in the work of the kingdom. It's this beautiful picture of, hey, I want you to be involved. This is not the Jesus show. I mean, it is. But it's also, hey, let's, let's work. Why don't you be our participants? And, and now in this, this was a physical miracle, right? Amidst all the metaphors and all the stuff, all the analogies that we want to make and all the ways we want to apply this to our lives, this was an extraordinary, extraordinary miracle. Imagine how this, like, I don't know, imagine how this played out. Do you ever think about this? All these people are sitting down. You've got 5,000 men, it says. So you've got probably fifteen to 20,000 minimum people there, probably more. But let's just go with 20,000 as a conservative estimate. There was a lot of kids back then. So you've got 20,000 people. You have got more than the entire, if the MTS, or sorry, no, Canada Life Center, if Canada Life Center was filled, that's only 15,000 and change, right? So, so more than that, you've got that amount of people sitting around on the grass and you've got five loaves and two fish. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Like, how long did that even take? What was the process? And then it says, because, and, and this is the thing, yes, it was about their physical hunger, but it, we know that it just wasn't about that. It says that they all ate and were satisfied. This, this, is, this is it. This is about satisfaction. This is about abundance. This is the fact that all satisfaction, all abundance ultimately is found in the Father. It is found in the Father. And Jesus is modeling this for us. You want satisfaction. You want to be satisfied. You want a life of abundance. It is in me. That is the very, it's the very nature of God. He satisfies and he multiplies. We heard about that this morning. We're praying for these boxes. You know, pray that they're, they're multiplied. That there's an exponential growth that goes out. Why? Because that's the nature of the Father. It's just part of who he is. Now it also says here, we, in verse 15, it notes that they were in a remote place. So, there, there was a Jewish expectation in this time when it came to bread from heaven. It, it, I mean, it, it's all throughout Scripture. It's, it's a thread all throughout the, Jewish, the life of the Jewish people. We have Moses and, the, and the, preser, uh, the provision of manna in the desert. We have Elijah who's hiding in the desert and ravens come to, to feed him. So there's this, we have in, in 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44, there's this, this neat little account of Elisha, where he was brought 20 loaves, okay? So, so he's brought 20 loaves, that's a lot more than five, to feed 100 men. And the servant goes to him, how can I set this before 100 men? He goes, 20 loaves isn't enough for 100 men. 
And the disciples are going, five loaves for 20,000 people. Remember Elisha? 20 loaves of bread for 100 and now Jesus, math. You know what it says in, in there in 2 Kings? It says, Elisha responds and says, give it to the people to eat. This is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. And that's exactly what happened with Elisha. So there was this expectation in the Jewish people when it came to bread and provision from God and how he was going to work. And so Jesus, he's making a huge and, and rather obvious statement here, actually. And we, and we see this in John, in John's account of this, when he, when he relays this account. After this happened, it says the people wanted to come and by force, take him by force and make him king. You know why? Because they got it. They saw what happened and they were like, this dude's the Messiah. Let's install him as our king right now. And Jesus was like, no, 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 this, you're not... You're not, you're not getting it. But, but the nature of this miracle, it's, it's connection to God's provision in the Old Testament. And Jesus' intentional actions here, they're meant to provide us with, with absolute clarity that Jesus is displaying through this physical miracle of bread his power to us to sustain us because of who he is. And so that's why John 6 goes much more in depth there. And it records that after this miracle, Jesus speaks about, don't, don't settle for food that spoils. You, you, need, you need eternal food. You need, you need the bread that I'm going to give you. Not, not, I'm not talking just about physical bread. You know, and this, and this is the thing, because one of the effects of our sinful nature is that we always have an appetite for more. We're, we're always looking for what can bring us satisfaction. And the sinful nature will keep just driving for that. I gotta keep, I gotta keep going, I need more, I need more. And, and here's the thing, we're never really satisfied. In ourselves, we can never, however much we accumulate, however much we go after, we're always left going, but I'm not, I'm not satisfied. But the lie is, we can be. That's, that's the ongoing lie in this world. You can be satisfied. We're, we're looking for this magic bull, bullet of fulfillment, if you will. Or the magic pill, or whatever you want to call it. We, we're, we're looking for that. So we see this in the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning. Where Satan comes to Adam and Eve and offers them to be like God. He says... You can be like God. All you need to do is eat of that tree. If you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like God. It, it'll be like magic. Poof. Do, you, do we think that Adam and Eve were never meant to have the knowledge of good and evil? Or was it more an issue of timing and obedience that God was going to lead them in that? as they were walking in relationship with him. I think that's the case. It wasn't about, it, it was about trust. It wasn't about get it in one shot. 
And that's the lie that Satan was tempting them with. And, and, and the question for us is, if we obey God, can we trust he has our ultimate good in mind? Because Satan's ploy was, you can have it instantly. Poof. It's there. You want it? All you got to do is do this. Just take the apple. And this is still the dream that we're chasing today. The deception of magic, if you will, permeates our world. And what I mean by that is we want quick, we want easy, and we want controllable in our lives. Rather than the path, the hard path, that leads to growth. So an obvious example of this right now. This thing. Quick, easy, controllable. And these things have an amazing ability, and all the engineers who engineer them know, they have an amazing ability to lead to addiction. And look what is on the back of my iPhone. An apple with a bite taken out of it. And all of you Android users are going, see, I knew Android was the, was the answer. Now, I've got a retort for you because in Hebrew, it's actually not apple, it's just fruit. So it wasn't an apple, it was the proverbial apple. It's pro it was probably a pomegranate. <laughs> but, but this is one of the pertinent questions for our lives. What do I need to do? What do I need to believe to be sustained? Am I looking for quick, easy, controllable? Or am I willing to follow Jesus' way and Jesus' path that is the hard path of discipleship and formation and learning to go through the junk to become more like him? Do, do I really believe this is, the, this is the question. Do I really believe that Jesus is the bread of life for me? That, that he is the one that sustains me? That he's the one I ultimately need? So let's read on. We're going to get into this second account here. Verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, 
Truly you are the son of God. So he went up, says that he withdrew. He went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. He's again, he's looking to get away. He's looking for communion with the Father. This is about relationship. This is about communion with his Father. And, and we read in this account, this is, this is the invitation of Jesus. I kind of wonder if this is like the birthplace of the altar call, if you will. Come. But there, but there is something to that. There is something to this invitation of Jesus to come. It's simple. And, you know, when we, when we read here of Peter stepping out of the boat and he's looking at Jesus and he's not looking at his circumstances, he seems totally unfazed by the obvious challenges of what he's doing. And it's, and it's profound. Again, it's, it's, again, it's a shocking event that, okay, we've got Jesus walking on the water. Okay, we've got to get our minds around that. And then we've got to get our minds around that Peter... Just a normal dude is stepping out of the boat and he's walking on water. How many steps did Peter take, do you think? Five? Ten? Fifteen? I don't, we don't know. Right? But, but then, when he becomes preoccupied with his situation, as he allows himself to realize, oh, my word, there's fear, there's doubt. And, and Jesus' response to him is that he, he seems to suggest that he could have done this. Like, Jesus is like, why, why? Peter, you could have done this. Why, why'd you doubt? And, I, you know, knowing what we know of Peter, like, you go, well, this is kind of brash, impulsive Peter again. Like, he's the one to kind of respond right away to Jesus. But, but Jesus doesn't, like he seems to suggest here that Peter wasn't punching above his weight, so to speak. That, that he was actually, he would have been able to do this looking to Jesus, which, think about that in the natural. And so there seems to be something here of, Peter's not just showing off. There, there's actually something here about genuine faith at work in the moment. See, and, and the danger with this story, and this is, this is the danger I feel when I, when I come to this text, is like, is the familiarity of it. Because it's probably top five Bible stories of all time. Like, it's, it's the one that you're like three and four, and you're in Sunday school, and you're learning about this one already. Like, like all of our kids in Sunday school, all of them know this story, like, by rote. Pretty much. It's just there. And so, there's so many cliches in it. For us, right? Like, we, we, you got to step out of the boat. Faith involves trust. Keep looking to Jesus. Faith over fear. Once we get our eyes off Jesus, we're sunk. I'm sure all of those are like on some plaques sold in Bible stores. Right? Probably at Hobby Lobby. For sure at Hobby Lobby, actually. There's got to be at least one of those at Hobby Lobby. If any of you have those on your wall, I, I'm, I'm, it's, all, it's all good. But, but the cliches are there for a reason, right? Because cliches are cliches for a reason. 
It's in, and in the structure of his gospel here, Matthew, again, he's being intentional because the recipients of the gospel of Matthew were struggling. They were struggling still against Roman occupation and against religious persecution at the hands of the Jewish leaders. So they knew, like, their, their struggle was real when they were receiving this gospel. And this is the second storm account in Matthew. The first one, if you remember, right, Jesus is in the boat. He's, he's sleeping, but at least he's in the boat. Here now we've got a second one, and he's nowhere to be found. And they're struggling. They're struggling, if you, if you look at the text, they're struggling for most of the night on this lake. And we're meant, we are meant to relate this to our lives. To, to put ourselves in the boat, so to speak. Where is Jesus? Why, why did he put the disciples in this situation? He did. He put them into this situation. He, he put them on that boat. He sent them away. Jesus, why would you do that to us? And so what do we see? We actually see this reality. Jesus allows us to encounter storms in our lives. We live in a broken and fractured world. We are broken and fractured people. We deal with our own brokenness. Sin is not just something that we do. Sin is woven into the fabric of our fallen world. It's not just done by us. Sin is done to us and experienced by us. It is, it is what we swim in. We swim in a sinful fallen world that is broken and in desperately need of being redeemed and set right. And without, think about this world without the hope of Jesus. It is, it's horrible. It's horrible. If we have, if we do not have the hope of Jesus in this world, this world is horrible. So, there are storms that Jesus knows that we're going to encounter and he's going to allow us to experience. But Jesus doesn't leave you in the midst of the storm. Not, not forever. We're not alone. And so it brings up questions like, do I believe that Jesus is in everything? That in absolutely everything that happens in my life, Jesus is somehow in it, allowing it to happen, working through it for my good. Do I believe that? Do, like, I mean, not just like I say that on Sundays and I quote the right verse. No, like do I believe that in the fabric of my being as I live? Do I, do I believe that everything is sustained by his powerful word? Like Hebrews says. So in the midst of the storm, Jesus comes to them. And he says, I'm here. I'm here. Take courage. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to the fear. The storm is still going on when Peter gets out of the boat. The storm is not stilled when Peter gets out of the boat. It's still raging. It's still going on when Jesus invites him to come. The presence of Jesus actually doesn't mean the absence 
of storms in our life. Jesus can be in the midst of a storm that is raging in your life, and Jesus is there. So what's the difference between Peter walking on water and sinking? It's looking to Jesus, is it not? Or some form of that? It's, the difference is, is fear. Fear is the opposite of faith and trust. And we can, we can I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying I think all of us here can identify with Peter. I think we're all looking going, I, I can totally get on board with that. Situations where, you know, at first we respond with just full of faith and trust. We're, 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 we're looking to Jesus. We're, we're, we're good. We believe that he's got us. And then we encounter roadblocks or we encounter stuff or something happens. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, fear's right back into the mix. That, that, that is the human condition. That, that is the part of the essence of what we battle. And in that moment, Peter cries out, Lord, save me. There's this, this, I love it because there's this immediate reliance on Jesus. Notice how it says then that immediately Jesus responds, it says in the text. Jesus didn't delay in his response to Peter. He didn't, he didn't let Peter start to go down and wondering, am I going to die? Immediately, Jesus responds. Equally, immediately when he starts to sink, Peter doesn't try to make it on his own. He's not trying to, to use his own abilities to try. Immediately, he cries out. Now, all of this kind of presents a problem for us. Is this an all-encompassing promise is one of the questions that arises. Meaning, will Jesus always immediately respond? And what if it doesn't seem like that in my life? What if it feels like I'm in the middle of a storm and Jesus isn't immediately responding the way that I think he should? And, and we've got to wrestle and we've got to We've got to really seek the Lord with Jesus isn't just a personal savior at our beck and call to make sure that our lives go exactly the way we figure they're going to go. And we all, that's me, suffering, struggle, difficulties, they, they have this way of forming us to be more like Jesus. Yes, Jesus has saved us. Big picture, we're saved. Right? If we've surrendered our lives to Christ as Lord of our lives, we're, we're saved. But it comes back to this question. Who or what will save me? What are we looking to? What are we trusting in our lives? And... and you know, it brings up questions like, 
what, what Jesus do I want? Do, do I want the Jesus of my own making? Do I want the Jesus that kind of always agrees with me and always fits in with what I want? He kind of just, you know, he seems to always agree with me and I can kind of just do whatever I want and that's, that's kind of the Jesus I like. Or do we want Jesus for who he actually is? The one who actually will call me on stuff and challenge me to change and challenge my misconceptions and challenge the stuff in me that needs to become more like him. The one who actually has power to save me. So these two accounts, they speak to those two pivotal questions again. Who or what will sustain me? Who or what will save me? The two questions that we're always asking. And, you know, it's interesting, right? Because then the response, as Peter and Jesus get back into the boat, the response is, well, truly you are the Son of God. You, you really are. We, this, this is astounding. So I want to, we're going to transition here and, and um, we're going to end by um, the invitation to participate in communion together. And you know, we're, we're meant to see, one of the things we're meant to see in the feeding of the 5,000 is this, this foreshadowing of what's to come with Jesus. That, that this theme of bread that's throughout scripture and God's provision for his people, it, it culminates in Jesus inviting us to be sustained and to be nourished by him. And that Jesus is sufficient in all things and for all things. And, and there is this, this banquet of communion coming, if you will, that is, or th- this banquet of communion, I should rather say, is, is representative of what is to come. And we, we remind, we're reminding ourselves through this participation in communion, that Jesus is Lord. He's the one who sustains us. And, and we're also stirring desire in ourselves. We're stirring desire for what is to come. It's, it's this powerful declaration of who we're meant to follow and, and where all this is going. And so we're, we're being purposeful, right, in, in stirring our anticipation for the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. And we're reminding ourselves, if you will, that Jesus is the one who sustains us. Jesus is the one who saves us. So, we're going to participate together in this. This is the invitation. Um, Back in October... I spoke at length about communion. The last time we took it, we, we spent a whole service talking about communion and um, just, just the importance of this for us together as the body of Christ, right? And, and that, that as part of this, it's necessary to examine ourselves. It's necessary to examine our relationships in the body before we participate. But it's an invitation to partake of this together. And, and one of the reasons we wanted to do it today is it, it fits so nicely 
alongside a bring and share meal together. That as we, as we participate in this and then we go in and we get to, to eat together. But again, in this, that there is, you know, no compulsion. There's no pressure. There's no, there's no judgment. Uh, we're, not, we're not looking at one another. This is, about, this is about us doing this together, but it's also about us together with the Lord. And so, um, guys, you can come up. Tony and Lisa, you guys can come up and you're the team. Um, I want to give us a couple minutes here as, as we'll, we'll have the communion up here. You can just come and grab it yourself. I want to put up two questions for us to just put before the Lord to allow ourselves to, to process as we, as we take communion. And that is, first, where, where do I need to repent of looking elsewhere other than Jesus to be sustained? And where do I need to repent of attitudes or actions that keep me from the way of Jesus? And so, as Tony and Lee says, they play, and as we take a few minutes to just allow yourself to be before the Lord, allow the Lord to minister to you, and put those questions to the Lord. And then as, as you feel led, you can come up, you can grab the bread and the juice, and then I'll lead us in communion together in a few minutes.